519, The Tenant of Wildfell Hall, Chapters 4 and 5. Book talk starts at 2415. Welcome to Craplet, the podcast for crafters who love books. My name is Heather Ordover, and I'm podcasting from where the Delaware River meets the Old York Road, New Hope, Pennsylvania. Episode 519, Confessions of an American Cake Eater. This episode of Craftlet is brought to you by its listeners. Many thanks and much gratefulness to all of the listeners who have gone over to patreon.com slash and pledged their support to the show. We couldn't do it without you. Thank you. Well, hello. How are you? I am well. I hope you are too. I hope the whole world gets well very, very soon so we can do things again. But in the meantime, three guesses what we've started watching. Yes, that's right. Late to the party, we have started watching The Great British Baking Show. And uh, I've linked to the season that we have been watching. It's the 2019 season, uh, the one that started in August 2019. And it's just lovely. Everybody's lovely. And, you know, cheerful and kind to each other and smart and responsible. And do you sense a theme in the things that I wish there was more of? (laughs) Maybe. (laughs) So there's been baking. And it got really bad because this week, Thing 2's chemistry class assignment for this week was to take a recipe, a cake recipe, and then double it. And it's proving to be interesting. The choosing of the recipe is proving to be interesting. I'm watching how he's thinking through this. And uh, I'll let you know how it comes out next week. But that's one of the things that's been occupying my mind uh, along with that. You may have seen ads for a new online course site. This is not, uh, while there is an, an office in the United States in San Francisco, this is not an American based product. It's called Domestica, D O M E S T I K A. And they do a pretty good job of automatic and instant translations, and everything has subtitles. Uh, at least into English. Also, I think most of them are translated, have have subtitles also into Portuguese and Spanish. And I think there's a couple of other languages in there as well. But you can set it to automatically translate. So it becomes like a Babel fish from Hitchhiker's Guide. My professor in one of the classes is writing back to me in Swedish. I am writing to him in English. Other people in the class are writing in Spanish. It's really cool. Not all of the classes are great. They are not all awe-inspiring, but they are all diverting. (laughs) And they all have something new that I didn't know before. So I've learned at least a little something each time. Plus, you know, just having a project to do, a thing that is other is really nice right now. So I've been doing a a doodle sketching class, and now I'm doing a sketch and watercolor with Japanese influence being taught 
by an Argentine Japanese woman. Fascinating. And I've learned some really cool watercolor techniques. But on top of that, I am currently, right now, about to, as soon as I leave recording, go back and start working on Japanese brush techniques. This is something I've always wanted to learn, but I always, you know, forgot to go find a YouTube video or didn't have time or didn't want to waste the watercolor paper because it's really expensive. But right now, you know, sure. So the whole Domestica platform, I'm pretty impressed with. It's still very new, very, very new. Like, I think it's been online 16 days and... And that's very new. So they're pretty good about if you're having a bug, if you're having an issue, let them know. They have a Twitter and a Facebook feed. Um, they're fairly responsive. And I think I mentioned, but now I can't remember if I did, right now, as of May, what is it? May 13th, 2020, pretty much all of the classes are on ridiculous markdown. Like what would be a $44 class is $9. So if you're interested... You only have to pay once, and then you have lifetime access. Uh, they have an iPad app, uh, an Android app, an iPhone app, and then they also have their portal on the uh, a regular standard web browser for a computer. All of that said, one of the things I've learned is that if you're accessing it through your phone or your iPad, it will look like, A, you can't see full versions of any pictures. That's just the mobile interface. If you go on the web browser, you actually can see complete-sized pictures. Two, it looks like on the iPhone or iPad that the resources for the class are kind of sketchy. That's because not all of them are showing up. The page that has access to the resources doesn't translate into the iOS platform. I don't know about the Android. It might be better there. Number three, the one thing that they hadn't figured out in filming their tutorials was that, especially for art classes, we need close-ups of the art to be able to see what the instructor is talking about, what they're trying to point out to you as far as, and, and see when you do it this way, you get this kind of texture. They're not zooming in. It's almost impossible to see details on an iPhone or an Android phone. However, what I've been doing is snapping screenshots of those moments, like pause, snap the screenshot, zoom in on that screenshot so that I just focus on the piece that I want to be able to concentrate on, save that to the photos, and then I can see it more closely and I can kind of zoom in myself. It's much easier to see the detail on a much larger screen. So if you can look at it on your laptop or on a, a computer browser or even an iPad, certainly a screenshot on an iPad that you zoom into, so much better. So those are, you know, the kinks that they're working out. I appreciate the humongous discount. And I really appreciate getting a chance to see artists who don't live in the United States and who have slightly different ways of approaching the art that they do. It's just, it's awesome. It's, as you know, one of the things that I really dig about Craftlet and Craftlet people in general is getting to know stuff from all over. And a reminder on that front, two different times for book chats. And I think when we have a whole lot of people, I'm just going to take volunteers because not everybody's reading something new, especially people who are coming every week. Sometimes they have updates, sometimes not so much. 
So I think it's it's going to be a little freer. Plus, we've had um, several times now when we've had a big crowd, there are people who have to drop off before they've been able to share stuff. So this way, rather than you waiting for me to call out your name, and I try and go kind of in the order of appearance, but if if you have to leave early, at least you'll have a chance to kind of raise your hand and say, hey, I got to go. Can I share? And and you'll be able to. So if you haven't come to one of the book chats um, or book and crafty chats, please do. Links are in the show notes. They take you to a registration page. The registration page is just so that I have emails for everybody who's signed up at some point in case I need to email you something like, wow, the link that we use every week completely died and I have to send you a new one or something like that. It doesn't go on a mailing list or, or anything like that. It's simply for the, the Zoom chats. But you're more than welcome to come. You can calculate out the time for your time zone based on this. Tuesday is, for me, Eastern Standard Time or Eastern Daylight Time in the United States. For me, it will be 5 a.m. This means all of our friends on the other side of the world, New Zealand, Australia, all places over in that region, that's a good time for you. And Thursday nights, 7 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time is when I hold the, the Thursday night book chat. That one's usually larger. And Tuesday morning, it's been interesting. There are several people who get up crazy early, like me, some even earlier than me from the central time zone, Laura Ricketts. So uh, it's usually a smaller group. But if you're up crazy early in the States, please feel free to come in bleary-eyed and drink coffee with us and have a good time. Again, links are in the show note for this episode, craftlit.com slash 519. One of the things that I was sharing this week is my continued progress back on the Vogue 2002 Map of the World Afghan. I mentioned Tuesday morning that as I was in, in the process of completing the third panel, I am looking at the amount of blue that I have for the ocean. And even though my husband bought absolutely everything as described in the pattern, he, back in 2004, did this incredible job for my birthday of buying all the yarn. And I think he had to go to seven different stores to do it, online stores. The Tackley Rowan Tweed homespun, handspun, homespun, which is a, a worsted, knobby, nubby, beautiful, scratchy yarn. It's become clear that I do not have enough watercolor, the teal. But I did find two balls available on eBay. And boy, did I grab those suckers fast. So I think that's going to get me through the fourth and final panel. If anyone has made this sucker, please get a hold of me, heather at craftlit.com or call our call-in line 206-350-1642 because I have some questions about putting the backing on. I am just a little bit concerned about the final step. Sewing up the panels, not worried. Probably should be worried, not worried. Putting a backing on this, yeah, I could use some guidance, support, guidance, handholding, maybe, something like that. <sighs> that's the other thing that's really been nice about the Tuesday and Thursday chats, too, is not every week, but often 
either I have a question for everybody about something that I'm working on, or somebody else brings up a question to get advice on. And, you know, we have a great community of really smart people. So answers are usually found and patterns are often sourced and it's really fun. So that's another selling point. I'm also finally, see, this is the finally thing, the quarantine-ness of life has certainly pushed me back into finishing up some UFOs from way back. Not recent UFOs. These go back a ways. The other thing that I've been working on along with the Vogue Map of the World Afghan is the t-shirt quilts that I had started, oh, I don't know, five years ago for the boys. For a while there, I thought it was going to be a graduation present for Aaron. Not so much. <laughs> but I found all of the t-shirt material and I found all of the leftover t-shirt backs, which meant I was able to cut matching fabric for different sizes of plain quilt blocks. Why is this important? This is important because if you follow the link in the show notes, you will see that unlike your standard t-shirt quilt, where each block is a uniform size, like 12 by 12, which sometimes means you wind up having to cut logos off or you have a small logo in the middle and then nothing but free space around it. And it's the layout gets really complicated because you have to keep it from looking lopsided due to the way you're cutting it. Um, and then with, you know, standard sashing down in between all of the blocks so that it, it looks like a classic t-shirt quilt. The way that this woman figured out how to do it is to use multiples of four. So you have four by four squares, four by eight squares, four by 12 squares, eight by eight squares, eight by 12, not squares, rectangles, eight by 16, 16 by 16, 12 by 12, 12 by 16. I think that's it. So you can go vertical. You can go horizontal either way with the rectangles. And as a consequence, the laying out of this, because there is no sashing involved, these are t-shirt designs right up against each other. The layout becomes really tricky. And I've been using a lot of double-sided tape and cut out scaled template pieces. So I have squares that I cut out that were 16 by 16, 12 by 12, 8 by 8, 4 by 4. And I have a mess load of those that I can then color the color of the t-shirt fabric and write on the little piece of paper what the image is or what the logo is so that I can stick that down on some surface that is not going to be disturbed and move everything around until I find a layout that A, works, and B, looks nice. All of that said, when I first started doing the layout, which was the last time I touched this, so several years ago, I realized that while I had a lot of t-shirts, I didn't have enough to make a quilt the size that I wanted for each of the boys. But now that I've relocated all of those t-shirts, I now have blocks of various sizes that are the blanks, that I can use to create free space all over, scattered all over the t-shirt quilt, which means I can add slash applique other designs slash logos on later as they age. <laughs> so I'm very excited. Tonight, I will be on the organizing all of the, the pieces to match up to the layout, pinning them together, 
and then I'm, I'm going to be able to start sewing pretty soon. I also found that I had saved something from Thing 2. He had a backpack that had a dragon motif on it and the back zippered pouch, which was almost the entire size of the backpack. So it's pretty big. It's, it's at least 12 inches tall and about 10 inches wide. So it fits on a 16 by 12. Uh-huh. I saved this backpack pouch because the art on it was really great, but also because it was that uh, plasticky, hologrammy kind of stuff where depending on which angle you look at the art, it moves or it looks like it's moving. And I don't know why I saved it. I'd cut the sucker out with pinking shears ages ago, but I realized, oh my gosh, I can sew it onto one of the blanks. And then he'll have a zippered pouch on his quilt. And that's so cool. So I'm, I have to do all of this when they're not looking. And since we're all home together, this has been fun. But I'm about two thirds of the way done with sewing that thing on because I'm basting it on with a blanket stitch by hand first. I will sew it on more permanently later, but I wanted to make sure I got the layout proper, properly oriented first. So hand basting. Yay. Books that I've heard about. I think all of these came from Jennifer on Thursday Night Chats. I think that's right. Pickwick Papers. So here's what we've learned. Charles Dickens was a lousy book titler because Bleak House is one of the funnier books I've ever read, and that is the worst possible title for it. And the Pickwick Papers just to me sounded really dull. Who wants to look at a pile of papers owned by a man named Pickwick? Turns out that is not what the book is about at all. It is hilarious. If you've read uh, Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norell, Mr. Pickwick is kind of a Mr. Norell character in his weird quirkiness, but he's surrounded by other people who are also strangely quirky in a way that only Dickens can do all of them named appropriately. But it's kind of like a, a series of short stories about these people. It's perfect to listen to right now because it's just episodic and it's funny and it's light. And I was able to download it on our Hoopla app, which is the one that connects to our local public library. And Simon Preble is the reader and he's beautiful. He can do every voice on the planet. And he does because it's Dickens. So that's turned out to be a lot of fun. And then Jennifer, I know this one for certain, this was Jennifer. She had just, when we started doing the book chats, she had just finished reading Picnic at Hanging Rock and has been haunted by it and is waiting desperately for somebody to read it. I went the same morning that I found Pickwick Papers on Hoopla. I looked up Picnic at Hanging Rock. And while there is no e-copy of it available through my bookstore, it is, or through my library, it is on LibriVox. And it is, she's absolutely right, it is haunting. It has a, an ending that is appropriate, but that doesn't mean it is easy. I couldn't find an e-copy of it, but I did find a series version. Now, evidently there was a movie in, I think, the 70s, the mid-70s, that has some controversy because I believe they changed the ending, which would be a huge mistake. The series, which um, uh, Natalie Dormer, 
She played Marjorie in Game of Thrones. Fabulous. And she was um, Moriarty on Elementary, the Johnny Lee Miller and Lucy Liu Sherlock show that was on for a while. She's marvelous. And I swear to you, the first five minutes, if the first five minutes and 36 seconds of the series don't compel you to keep watching, then just stop because you're not going to like the rest of it. And that's fine. You've wasted five minutes and 36 seconds. If the first five minutes and 36 seconds compel you, you may very well do what I did on Mother's Day. And I just binge watched that sucker for free from the public library. Wow. As soon as I was done, I raced over to Gutenberg and I downloaded the PDF of the book. And Jennifer, I just wanted you to know that I, I did my Tale of Two Cities move. I read the first two chapters. I read the last two chapters. I just really wanted to see, did the series stick to the book? And the answer is, yeah, actually, pretty darn close. The ending is still the ending. There are... I think several layers in the series that are hinted at in the text, but not necessarily completely fleshed out in in the text itself. And they they kind of do a more complete take on some elements in the series, but beautifully, beautifully shot, really well written. Uh, I think most of the dialogue that I saw was lifted directly from the book. And yeah, it's a fascinating ending, but super fascinating is this little fact. It's written by an Australian writer born shortly before the turn of the last century. I think she died. I think she died the year I was born. I think she died in 1967. And uh, it is such a compelling and realistic read because she's got letters in there and diary pages in there. So it, it looks like she's done kind of a anthropological study of this event at this location called Hanging Rock. Hanging Rock, not because anyone was hung there like the Wild Wild West, even though it's Australia, and that totally could have happened, but because it's like Devil's Tower. It's an outcropping of rock. And there's this one part that you see on the series where it looks like it probably used to be a cave, But the bottom chunk fell out, so you just have the overhang left, and it's just hanging there suspended. So that's cool. Because the author surrounded it with so much realness for decades now, people have thought this was a real story, a true story, like Heavenly Creatures actually is a true story. Peter Jackson's first film, that is a true story. That actually really happened. Picnic at Hanging Rock? Not so much. Sure coulda. Sure sounds plausible. Sure reads like a realistic piece of crime fiction or crime nonfiction. But yeah, no, it's just really, really well made, both the book and the series. So other things that can divert you that uh, I highly recommend. However, if you are not in a mood to have an end to a story that leaves you without all the answers, you, I mean, you pretty much know, but you don't know. No one proved, but you, it's, it's pretty, you think it's very likely that you know what probably happened, but still you're not sure. (laughs) Jennifer, I know why this has been bugging you. (laughs) If that sounds like it's going to drive you crazy, don't go there. 
Otherwise, please do. And let us know what you think. 206-350-1642. And come to Thursday night's book chat and tell Jennifer what you thought. (laughs) I think she'll be relieved that we all took a plunge with her. And now, Tenant. So uh, I gather from some comments that I've received that people are liking Tenant of Wildfell Hall. Hey, Heather, this is Sarah Blake, uh, Scaraliz, everywhere on the internet. Um, I am just calling because I just started listening to The Tenant of Wildfell Hall, and I'm so, so stoked that you're doing this book because it is my favorite of all Bronte books um, and is, um, I think, objectively the best Bronte. I recognize that it is absolutely subjective, but mm, she's objectively the best Bronte. Um, That's all. Hope you're doing great. Talk to you soon. Bye. That makes me so happy. And to make you happy too, just so you know, this week's chapter's not so tough, but lest you think they are just lightweight chapters because I don't have to front load you with all sorts of arcane information and archaic vocabulary. No, here's what your job is. Your job is to learn everything you can about these characters. You have two humongous characterization chapters that are beaming their way to you in today's episode. They don't sound complicated because they're not complicated, but they have tons of really important information, subtle information, and lots of biblical allusions. And as always, anytime Gilbert Markham is using biblical allusions, he's he's kind of doing almost a the trite thing, like He's the person who learned the saying without necessarily ever having understood slash thought particularly deeply about the saying or where it comes from in the Bible. So once again, if you hear something that sounds like it's from the Bible, you are correct. That is what you are hearing. And it is quite definitely from there. Quick reminder that Jove is another name for Jupiter or Zeus. So you're going to hear somebody giving a Jove-like nod, which would mean that he's thinking of himself or he, he sees himself internally like the father of the gods and everybody else. And so he's so important in his own mind. You will hear references to laudanum. We have come across laudanum several times in books that we've done. And chances are you're very familiar with it. It takes on an extra layer in any book about the Brontes, however. So I wanted to touch on a couple of things. Uh, One, this is where I got the title for today's episode. Confessions of an American Cake Eater is a reference to De Quincey's Confessions of an English Opium Eater, which came out in 1822. So opium was definitely a known quantity. And opium eaters, people who actually went to opium dens and just checked out for a day or two, that was all a known quantity. 
and it was certainly a known quantity to the Bronte girls, not because they'd experienced it, but because they read a lot of books that they probably shouldn't have when they were young. So they are just as savvy to adult foibles by the age of 20 as most modern kids are by the age of 15, if they've spent any time on the internet, is where I would draw the parallel. They know their way around human weakness. And then you add to that the fact that their brother Branwell, for all of the complicated reasons that we've talked about in, um, was it episode 515 or 516, Branwell had a rough go of it that last year of his life. All of the pressure for being the breadwinner for all of his sisters and his father, who was going blind, was on his shoulders. While he was a competent portrait painter, and I will link out to some of Branwell's uh, portraits for you, while, while he was a, a competent portrait painter, which doesn't show in the picture that he painted of his sisters, that was very early for him, he never really made it. He was never admitted to the Royal Academy. And... And then he had kind of one career disappointment after another. And when a massive love disappointment was factored in, he, he went down a bad rabbit hole. We know he was drinking. There's no real reason to think that he was an alcoholic by, by birth. There's no residual information about people in Patrick's family or people in their mother's family who had had problems with alcoholism. So there's, there's no reason to think that there was any genetic predisposition to this. He definitely went to a bad place and hurt himself. If he, if he had been cutting himself, I would not be surprised. It was that bad. Everything that I've read about what we know about how he looked, how he behaved, and, and what little we have of his writing from that actual time period, uh, make it clear that he was definitely drinking, probably taking laudanum from time to time, if not a lot towards the end. One of the words that I think Charlotte used, which I mentioned before, was, uh, I think it was dissipated, his dissipated frame. He, he was, in many ways, starving himself to death, starving himself of life and things do that he enjoyed, but also starving himself because, you know, food and taking care of yourself isn't nearly as interesting as getting high when you're that bad off. So, so Branwell had a rough go of it. So any time that we come across references to laudanum or drink in a book where the Brontes are involved in the writing thereof, prick up your ears because it's probably important. We have talked about dances before. We've talked about card games before from this time period. I don't know if we've ever talked about the fact that the waltz, the triple time, one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three, that that dance came from the continent, came from Europe. And for some people, a waltz was actually a pretty scandalous dance because unlike the line dances that are kind of like the Virginia Reel in the United States, a bunch of us learned when we were kids. Um, unlike those dances where you have two lines, a guy line and a girl line, and they face each other, and then they meet up and maybe touch hands and spin around a little bit and then walk to the back of the line. 
the waltz is two people in constant contact spinning around. And the spinning around means the guy is going to have to hold on to the girl. And that's a lot of touching. So there were lots of reasons why people thought that the, the waltz was a little too familiar. <laughs> There's a guy getting a little too familiar with his girl. Just keep that in mind because it does pop up. And the last thing before we listen, uh, we talked about Branwell being a portraitist. I think I mentioned before that Anne was also, Anne, Emily, and Charlotte were all really competent artists as well. They did the chick thing at the time, which was sketching and watercolors. Oils were really the purview of men for the most part. You know, they were messy and smelly and they were complicated and they were not really portable. And women, as you know, are busy little bees and have to be able to mobilize at a moment's notice. And that is not something you're going to be able to do if you're lugging around your oil paint set, your oil box. So uh, if I can find a couple more of the Anne Bronte images for you, I will, of her sketches. They're lovely. She was really, really talented. It's just heartbreaking. But yeah, just keep in mind, it was cool for chicks to do the watercolor thing. It was Maybe not so cool. Maybe, you know, just pushing the boundaries. Just a little controversial, perhaps, if you did oils in a skirt, is what I'm saying. So I don't know why I went to Brooklyn there for a moment, but <laughs> I guess it needed to happen. <laughs> All right, here we go. Chapters four and five of The Tenant of Wildfell Hall by Anne Bronte. Tenant of Wildfell Hall, Chapter 4, The Party Our party, on the 5th of November, passed off very well, in spite of Mrs Graham's refusal to grace it with her presence. Indeed, it is probable that, had she been there, there would have been less cordiality, freedom and frolics amongst us than there was without her. My mother, as usual, was cheerful and chatty, full of activity and good nature, and only faulty in being too anxious to make her guests happy thereby forcing several of them to do what their souls abhorred in the way of eating or drinking, sitting opposite the blazing fire, or talking, when they would be silent. Nevertheless, they bore it very well, being all in their holiday humour. Mr Millwood was mighty in important dogmas and sententious jokes, pompous anecdotes and oracle discourse dealt out for the edification of the whole assembly in general, and of the admiring Mrs Markham, the polite Mr Lawrence, the sedate Mary Millward, the quiet Richard Wilson, and the matter-of-fact Robert, in particular, as being the most attentive listeners. Mrs Wilson was more brilliant than ever, with her budgets of fresh news and old scandals strung together with trivial questions and remarks and oft-repeated observations, uttered apparently for the sole purpose of denying a moment's rest to her inexhaustible organs of speech. She had brought her knitting with her, and it seems as if her tongue had laid a wager with her fingers to outdo them in their swift and ceaseless motions. Her daughter Jane was, of course, as graceful and elegant, as witty and seductive as she could possibly manage to be. For here were all the ladies to outshine, and all the gentlemen to charm. 
and Mr. Lawrence especially to capture and subdue. Her little arts to effect his subjugation were too subtle and impalliable to attract my observation, but I thought there was a certain refined affectation of superiority and an ungenial self-consciousness about her that negatived all her advantages. And after she was gone, Rose interpreted to me her various looks, words and actions with a mingled acuteness and asperity that made me wonder, equally, at the lady's artifice and my sister's penetration, and asked myself if she, too, had an eye for the squire. But never mind, Halford, she had not. Richard Wilson, Jane's younger brother, sat in a corner, apparently good-tempered, but silent and shy, desirous to escape observation, but willing enough to listen and observe. And although somewhat out of his element, you'd have been happy enough in his own quiet way, if my mother would only let him alone, but in her mistaken kindness she would keep persecuting him with her attentions, pressing upon him all manner of villains, under the notion that he was too bashful to help himself, and obliging him to shout across the room his monosyllabic replies to the numerous questions and observations by which she vainly attempted to draw him into the conversation. Rose informed me that he never would have favoured us with his company, but for the importunities of his sister Jane, who was most anxious to show Mr Lawrence that she had at least one brother more gentlemanly and refined than Robert. That worthy individual, she had been equally solicitous to keep away, but he affirmed that he saw no reason why he should not enjoy a crack with Markham and the old lady. <laughs> My mother was not old, really. And Bonnie Miss Rose, and the parson, as well as the best. And he was in the right of it, too. So he talked commonplace with my mother and Rose, and discussed parish affairs with the vicar, farming matters with me, and politics with us both. Mary Millward was another mute, not so much tormented with cruel kindness as Dick Wilson, because she had a certain short, decided way of answering and refusing, and was supposed to be rather sullen and diffident. However that might be, she certainly did not give much pleasure to the company, nor did she appear to derive much from it. Eliza told me she'd only come because her father insisted upon it, having taken it into his head that she devoted herself too exclusively to her household duties, to the neglect of such relaxations and innocent enjoyments as were proper to her age and sex. She seemed to me to be in good humour enough on the whole. Once or twice she was provoked to laughter by the wit and merriment of some favoured individual amongst us, and then I observed she sought the eye of Richard Wilson, who sat over against her. As he studied with her father, she had some acquaintance with him, in spite of the retiring habits of both, and I suppose there was a kind of fellow-feeling established between them. My Eliza was charming beyond description, coquettish, without affectation, and evidently more desirous to engage my attention than that of all the room besides. Her delight in having me near her, seated or standing by her side, whispering in her ear or pressing her hand in the dance, was plainly legible in her glowing face and heaving bosom however belied by saucy words and gestures. But I had better hold my tongue. If I boast of these things now, I shall have to blush hereafter. To proceed then, with the various individuals of our party. Rose was simple and natural as usual, and full of mirth and vivacity. Fergus was impertinent and absurd, but his impertinence and folly served to make others laugh, if it did not raise himself in their estimation. And finally, for I admit myself, Mr. Lawrence was gentlemanly and inoffensive to all, 
and polite to the vicar and the ladies, especially his hostess and her daughter, and Miss Wilson, misguided man. He had not the taste to prefer Eliza Millward. Mr Lawrence and I were on tolerable intimate terms, essentially of reserved habits, and but seldom quitting the secluded place of his birth, where he had lived in solitary state since the death of his father, he had neither the opportunity nor the inclination for forming many acquaintances, and, of all he had ever known, I, judging by the result, was the companion most agreeable to his taste. I liked the man well enough, but he was too cold and shy and self-contained to obtain my cordial sympathies. A spirit of candour and frankness, when wholly unaccompanied with coarseness, he admired in others, but he could not acquire it himself. His excessive reserve upon all his own concerns was, indeed, provoking and chilly enough, but I forgave it, from a conviction that it originated less in pride and what of confidence in his friends, than a certain morbid feeling of delicacy and a peculiar diffidence that he was sensible of, but wanted energy to overcome. His heart was like a sensitive plant that opened for a moment in sunshine, but curled up and shrinks into itself at the slightest touch of a finger or the lightest breath of wind. And, upon the whole, our intimacy was rather a mutual predilection than a deep and solid friendship, such as arisen between myself and you, Alfred, whom, in spite of your occasional crustiness, I can liken to nothing so well as an old coat, unimpeachable in texture, but easy and loose, that has conformed itself to the shape of the wearer, and which he may use as he pleases, without being bothered with the fear of spoiling it. Whereas Mr Lawrence was like a new garment, all very neat and trim to look at, but so tight at the elbows that you would fear to split the seams by the unrestricted motion of your arms, and so smooth and fine in surface that you scrupled to expose it to a single drop of rain. Soon after the arrival of the guests, my mother mentioned Mrs Graham, regretting she was not there to meet them, and explaining to the Millwards and Wilsons the reason she had given for neglecting to return their calls, hoping they would excuse her, as she was sure she did not mean to be uncivil, and would be glad to see them at any time. "'But she's a very singular lady, Mr Lawrence,' added she. "'We don't know what to make of her, but I dare say you can tell us something about her, for she is your tenant, you know.' And she says, "'You knew her a little.' All eyes turned to Mr Lawrence. I thought he looked unnecessarily confused at being so appealed to. "'I, Mrs Markham,' said he, "'you are mistaken. I, I don't. That is, I have I've seen her, certainly. But I am the, the last person you should apply to for information respecting Mrs Graham.' He then immediately turned to Rose and asked her to favour the company with a song or tune on the piano. "'No!' said she. You must ask Miss Wilson. She outshines us all in singing and music too. Miss Wilson demurred. She'll sing readily enough, said Fergus, if you undertake to stand by her, Mr Lawrence, and turn over the leaves for her. I shall be most happy to do so, Miss Wilson. Will you allow me? She bridled her long neck and smiled, and suffered him to lead her to the instrument, where she played and sang in her very best style, one piece after another, while he stood patiently by her, leaning one hand on the back of her chair, and turning over the leaves of her book with the other. Perhaps he was as much charmed with her performance as she was, 
It was all very fine in its way, but I cannot say that it moved me very deeply. There was plenty of skill in execution, but precious little feeling. But we had not done with Mrs Graham yet. I don't take wine, Mrs Markham, said Mr Millward, upon the introduction of that beverage. I'll take a little of your home-brewed ale. I always prefer your home-brewed ale to anything else. Flattered by this compliment, my mother rang the bell, and a china jug of our best ale was presently brought and set before the worthy gentleman, who so well knew how to appreciate its excellence. Now this is the thing, cried he, pouring out a glass of the same in a long stream, skilfully directing from the jug to the tumbler, so as to produce much foam without spilling a drop, and having surveyed it for a moment opposite the candle, he took a deep draught and then smacked his lips, drew a long breath and refilled his glass, my mother looking on with the greatest satisfaction. There's nothing like it, Mrs Graham, said he. I always maintain that there's nothing to compare with your home-brewed ale. I'm sure glad you like it, sir. I always look after the brim myself, as well as the cheese and the butter. I like to have things well done while we're about it. Quite right, Mrs Markham. But then, Mr Millward, you don't think it's wrong to take a little wine now and then, or a little spirit either. As she handed a smoking tumbler of gin and water to Mrs Wilson, who affirmed that wine sat heavy in her stomach, and whose son Robert was at that same moment helping himself to a pretty stiff glass of the same. By no means, replied the oracle, with a Jove-like nod. These things are all blessings and mercies, if we only knew how to make use of them. But Mrs Graham doesn't think so. You should just hear now what she told us the other day. I told her I'd tell you. And my mother favoured the company, with a particular account of that lady's mistaken ideas and conduct regarding the matter in hand, concluding with, Now, don't you think it is wrong? Wrong! repeated the vicar, with a more common solemnity. Criminal, I should say, criminal! Not only is it making a fool of the boy, but it is despising the gifts of providence and teaching him to trample them under his feet. He then entered more fully into the question and explained at large the folly and impiety of such proceedings. My mother heard him with profoundest reverence, and even Mrs Wilson vouchsafed to rest her tongue for a moment and listened in silence while she complacently sipped her gin and water. Mr Lawrence sat with his elbows on the table, carelessly playing with his half-empty wine glass and covertly smiling to himself. But don't you think, Mr Millward, suggested he, when at length that gentleman paused in his discord, that when a child may be naturally prone to intemperance by the fault of its parents or ancestors, for instance, that some precautions are advisable. Now it was generally believed that Mr Lawrence's father had shortened his days by intemperance. Some precautions, it may be, but temperance there is one thing, and abstinence another. But I've heard that, with some persons, temperance that is, moderation is almost impossible, and if abstinence be an evil, which some have doubted, no one will deny that excess is a greater. Some parents have entirely prohibited their children from tasting intoxicating liquors, but a parent's authority cannot last forever. Children are naturally prone to hanker after forbidden things, and a child, in such a case, 
will be likely to have a strong curiosity to taste and try the effects of what has been so lauded and enjoyed by others, so strictly forbidden to himself, which curiosity would generally be gratified on the first convenient opportunity, and the restraint once broken, serious consequences might ensure. I don't pretend to be a judge of such matters, but it seems to me that this plan of Mrs Graham's, as you describe it, Mrs Markham, extraordinary as it may be, is not without its advantages. For here you see the child is delivered at once from temptation. He has no secret curiosity, no hankering desire. He is as well acquainted with the tempting liquor as he ever wishes to be, and is thoroughly disgusted with them, without having suffered from their effect. And is that right, sir? Have I not proven to you how wrong it is? How contrary to scripture and to reason, to teach a child to look with contempt and disgust upon the blessings of providence, instead of to use them aright. You may consider laudanum a blessing of providence, sir, replied Mr Lawrence, smiling, and yet you will allow that most of us had better abstain from it, even in moderation. But, added he, I would not desire you to follow my simile too closely, in witness whereof. I finished my glass. And take another, I hope, Mr Lawrence, said my mother, pushing the bottle towards him. He politely declined and pushed his chair a little away from the table. Leant back towards me, I was seated a trifle behind, on the sofa beside Eliza Millwood, and carelessly asked me if I knew Mrs Graham. I met her once or twice, I replied. What do you think of her? I cannot say that I like her much. She is handsome, or rather, I should say distinguished and interesting, in her appearance, but by no means amiable. A woman liable to take strong prejudice, I should fancy, and stick with them through thick and thin, twisting everything into conformity with her own preconceived opinions. Too hard, too sharp, too bitter for my taste. He made no reply, but looked down and bit his lip, and shortly after, rose and sauntered up to Miss Wilson. As much repelled by me, I fancy, as attracted by her. I scarcely noticed it at the time but afterwards I was led to recall this and another trifling fact of similar nature to my remembrance when but I must not anticipate we wound up the evening with dancing our worthy pastor thinking it no scandal to be present on the occasion though one of his village musicians was engaged to direct our evolutions with his violin but Mary Millward abstained and refused to join in and so did Richard Wilson though my mother earnestly entreated him to do so and even offered to be his partner. We managed very well without them, however, with a single set of quadrilles and several country dancers. We carried it on to a pretty late hour, and at length, having called upon our musician to strike up a waltz, I was just about to whirl Eliza round in that delightful dance, accompanied by Lawrence and Jane Wilson and Fergus and Rose, when Mr Millward interposed with, No, no, I will not allow that. Come, it's time we were going now. Oh, no, no, papa, pleaded Eliza. I time, my girl, I time. Moderation in all things. Remember, that's the plan. Let your moderation be known unto all men. But in revenge, I followed Eliza into the dimly lighted passage, where, under the pretense of helping her on with her shawl, I fear I must plead guilty to snatching a kiss behind her father's back while he was enveloping his throat and chin in the folds of a mighty comforter. But alas, in turning round, 
there was my mother close behind me. The consequence was that no sooner were the guests departed that I was doomed to a very serious remonstration which unpleasantly checked the galloping course of my spirits and made a disagreeable close to the evening. My dear Gilbert, said she, I wish you wouldn't do so. You know how deeply I have your advantages at heart, how I love you and prize you above everything else in the world, and how much I long to see you well settled in life, and how bitterly it would grieve me to see you married to that girl or any other in the neighbourhood. What you see in her I don't know. It isn't only the want of money that I think about, nothing of the kind, but there's neither beauty nor cleverness nor goodness nor anything else that's desirable. If you knew your own value as I do, you wouldn't dream of it. Do wait a while and see. If you bind yourself to her, you'll repent it all your lifetime when you look around and see how many better there are. Take my word for it, you will. Well, mother, do be quiet. I hate to be lectured. I'm not going to marry yet, I tell you. But, dear me, mayn't I enjoy myself at all? Yes, my dear boy, but not in that way. Indeed, you shouldn't do such things. You were wronging the girl. If she were what she ought to be. But I assure you, she is an awful a little hussy as anybody need wish to see. And you'll get entangled in her snares before you know where you are. And if you marry her, Gilbert, you'll break my heart. So there's an end to it. Well, don't cry about it, mother said I, for the tears were gushing from her eyes. There, let that kiss efface the one I gave Eliza. Don't abuse her any more, and set your mind at rest, for I'll promise never, that is, I'll promise to think twice before I take any important steps you seriously disapprove of. So saying, I lighted my candle and went to bed, considerably quenched in spirit. Chapter 5. The Studio It was about the close of the month that, yielding at length to the urgent importunities of Rose, I accompanied her in a visit to Wildfell Hall. To our surprise, we were ushered into a room where the first object that met our eyes was a painter's easel, with a table beside it, covered with rolls of canvas, bottles of oil and varnish, palette, brushes, paints, etc. Leaning against the wall, were several sketches in various stages of progression, and a few finished paintings, mostly of landscapes and figures. I must make you welcome to my studio, said Mrs. Graham. There is no fire in the sitting room today, and it is rather too cold to show you into a place with an empty grate. And disengaging a couple of chairs from the artistical lumber that usurped them, she bid us be seated, and resumed her place beside the easel, not facing it exactly but now and then glancing at the picture upon it while conversing, and giving it an occasional touch with her brush, as if she found it impossible to wean her attention entirely from her occupation, to fix it upon her guests. It was a view of Wildfell Hall, as seen at early morning from the field below, rising in dark relief against a sky of clear silvery blue, with a few red streaks on the horizon, faithfully drawn and coloured, and very elegantly and artistically handled, I see your heart is in your work, Mrs. Graham, observed I. I must beg you go on with it, for if you suffer our presence to interrupt you, we shall be constrained to regard ourselves as unwelcome intruders. 
Oh no, replied she, throwing her brush on the table, as if startled into politeness. I am not so beset with visitors, but that I can readily spare a few minutes to the few that do favour me with their company. You have almost completed your painting, said I, approaching to observe it more closely, and surveying it with a greater degree of admiration and delight than I care to express. A few more touches in the foreground will finish it, I should think. But why have you called it Fernley Manor Cumberland? Instead of Wildfell Hall, Yorkshire, I asked, alluding to the name she had traced in small characters at the bottom of the canvas. But immediately, I was sensible of having committed an act of impertinence in so doing, for she coloured and hesitated. But after a moment's pause, with a kind of desperate frankness, she replied, Because I have friends, acquaintances, at least in the world, from whom I desire my present abode to be concealed, and, as they might see the picture, and might possibly recognise the style in spite of the false initials I have put in the corner, I take the precaution to give a false name to the place also, in order to put them on a wrong scent, if they should attempt to trace me out by it. Then you don't intend to keep the picture, said I, anxious to say anything to change the subject. No, I cannot afford to paint for my own amusement. Mamma sends all her pictures to London, said Arthur, and somebody sells them for her there, and sends us the money. And looking round upon the other pieces, I remarked a pretty sketch of Linden Hope from the top of the hill, another view of the old hall basking in the sunny haze of a quiet summer afternoon, and a simple but striking little picture of a child brooding, with the looks of silent but deeply sorrowful regret, over a handful of withered flowers, with glimpses of dark low hills and autumn field behind it, and a dull beclouded sky above. You see, there is a sad dearth of subjects, observed the fair artist. I took the old hole once, on a moonlit night, and I suppose I must take it again on a snowy winter's day, and then again on a dark cloudy evening, for I really have nothing else to paint. I have been told that you have a fine view of the sea somewhere in the neighbourhood. Is it true? And is it within walking distance? Yes, if you don't object to walking four miles, or nearly so, little short of eight miles, there and back, over somewhat rough, fatiguing roads. In what direction does it lie? I described the situation as well as I could, and was entering upon an explanation of the various roads, lanes and fields to be traversed in order to reach it, then going straight on and turning to the right and the left, when she checked me with, Oh, stop! Don't tell me now. I shall get every word of your directions before I require them. I shall not think about going till next spring, and then perhaps I may trouble you. At present we have the winter before us, and... She suddenly paused, with a suppressed exclamation, started up from her seat, and saying, Excuse me one moment, hurried from the room, and shut the door behind her. Curious to see what had startled her so, I looked towards the window, for her eyes had been carelessly fixed upon it in the moments before, and just beheld the skirts of a man's coat vanishing behind a large holly-bush that stood between the window and the porch. "'It's Mamma's friend,' said Arthur. Rose and I looked at each other. "'I don't know what to make of her at all,' whispered Rose. The child looked at her in grave surprise. She straightway began to talk to him on different matters, while I amused myself with looking at the pictures. There was one in an obscure corner that I had not before observed. It was a little child, seated on the grass, with its lap full of flowers. 
the tiny features and large blue eyes, smiling through a shock of light brown curls, shaken over the forehead as it bent above its treasure, bore sufficient resemblance to those of the young gentleman before me, to proclaim it a portrait of Arthur Graham in his early infancy. In taking this up, to bring it to the light, I discovered another behind it, with its face to the wall. I ventured to take that up too. It was the portrait of a gentleman, in the full prime of youthful manhood, handsome enough, and not badly executed, but if done by the same hand as the others, it was evidently some years before, for there was far more careful minuteness of detail, and less of their freshness of colouring and freedom of handling that delighted and surprised me in them. Nevertheless, I surveyed it with considerable interest. There was a certain individuality in the features and expression that stamped it, at once, as a successful likeness. The bright blue eyes regarded the spectator with a kind of lurking drollery. You almost expected to see them wink. The lips, a little too voluptuously full, seemed ready to break into a smile. The warm-tinted cheeks were embellished with a luxuriant growth of reddish whiskers, while the bright chestnut hair, clustered in abundant, wavy curls, trespassed too much upon the forehead, and seemed to intimate that the owner thereof was proud of his beauty than his intellect. And perhaps he had reason to be, and yet he looked no fool. I had not had the portrait in my hands for two minutes before the fair artist returned. Only someone come about the pictures, said she, in apology for her abrupt departure. I told them to wait. I fear it will be considered an act of impertinence, said I, to presume to look at a picture that the artist has turned to the wall, but may I ask? It is an act of very great impertinence, sir, and therefore I beg you will ask nothing about it, for your curiosity will not be gratified, replied she, attempting to cover the tartness of her rebuke with a smile. But I could see, by her flushed cheeks and kindling eye, that she was seriously annoyed. I was only going to ask if you had painted it yourself, said I, sulkily resigning the picture into her hands, for without a grain of ceremony she took it from me and quickly restored it to the dark corner, with its face to the wall, placing the other against it as before, and then turned to me and laughed. But I was in no humour for jesting. I carelessly turned to the window, and stood looking out upon the desolate garden, leaving her to talk to Rose for a minute or two, and then, telling my sister it was time to go, shook hands with the little gentleman, coolly bowed to the lady, and moved towards the door. But having bid adieu to Rose, Mrs. Graham presented her hand to me, saying, with a soft voice, and by no means a disagreeable smile, Let not the sun go down upon your wrath, Mr. Markham. I'm sorry I offended you by my abruptness. When a lady condescends to apologise, there is no keeping one's anger, of course. So we parted good friends for once, and this time I squeezed her hand with a cordial, not spiteful pressure. Okay, so we've learned several important things. We've gotten a much better picture of who the folks in town are and how they line up with each other and and what Gilbert thinks of said individual folks in town. So that's kind of a file it away for the future. If you need to re-listen to a chapter to pigeonhole where somebody's behavior is coming from, Chapter four is the chapter to listen to. Chapter five is where we find out a lot more about Helen Graham 
Uh, number one, oil painter. So, sup with that. Number two, that's how she makes her living? I can't, I couldn't think of another book from this time period, the first half of the 1800s, where a woman, A, had a career or profession at least, and B, where it was making her living by being an artist. It's, it's huge to me. I remember the first time I was listening to the book, the first time through, my jaw hit the floor and I thought I misheard and I, <laughs> I thought I'd misheard it. And I went back and I re-listened to chapter five. I was like, nope, nope, I was not wrong. She really is a painter by profession. We know that she has named the painting of Wildfell Hall under a different name and a different county. We don't know why. We know that there's a portrait of a very handsome man who looks maybe a little dangerous, perhaps a little too good looking for his own good, for her own good, for whose own good, for everyone's own good, for anyone who's within waltzing reach of him, perhaps. We know that there is a portrait of this guy and it is turned to the wall. We know that Helen has a temper. We also know that Helen's responses to Gilbert Markham, especially when he apologizes, and Honestly, when he's like a struck puppy, like, oh, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to do that. I was just curious, gosh, that she actually comes back and smiles and apologizes for being abrupt. And she means it. This is why Helen Graham can be such a tricky character to get your head around. Just like Elizabeth Bennett, who has a temper and has her prejudices and has her pride and is not afraid of expressing those things. Helen Graham is very similarly strong. The main difference here is that Helen Graham has clearly lived a life that has maybe not confirmed those prejudices and prideful arenas in her world, but has certainly been tested somehow and has come out on the harder end of things. Her initial stance is not to smile and be sweet and hide. She's also not putting herself out there. But when people speak directly to her, she speaks directly back, male or female. And that to me is a, a remarkable character. Again, especially when it's written by the Bronte sister who people just forget about all the time. If you are familiar with Wuthering Heights, you will, throughout this book, constantly find juxtapositions of juxtapositions of style and substance between Anne's take on telling this story and Emily's take on telling the Wuthering Heights story, where Emily goes to the dark, gloomy, windswept, craggy, violent end of the moors. Anne is wind-whipped, craggy, and gloomy adjacent. There are parts that are definitely on the, the gloomy end of the spectrum, but she doesn't wallow in it, and she doesn't let her characters wallow in it either, which I think shows that she's a really interesting blend of all of the crazy Byron and the uh, literary magazines and the not-so-literary magazines that the kids read when they were growing up and all of their 
world-building exercises that they did with Glasstown and Angria and and all of the the high drama and melodrama that they created in these make-believe worlds. And where Emily went there and stayed there, Anne really found a way to blend the reality that she saw as a governess, the reality of the real world that she saw when she was a governess, and the more melodramatic and in many ways exciting world that she and her sister created. And that is that. I'm going to let that be it. We will be back next week with more of Anne Bronte's The Tenant of Wildfell Hall. More mysteries to ravel. Actually, uh, we are not unraveling anything at this point. We are knitting a mystery as we go. And there is knitting in the book. And it's just ubiquitous. It's not really a big deal. It's just like Mrs. Wilson brings her knitting to the picnic. Because how else are you going to pay attention to all these people who you probably don't like all that much anyway? makes it much easier and uh and keeps you occupied all right take care of yourselves stay safe stay 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 safe 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 take care of yourself take care of each other i wear my mask to protect everyone else i'm hoping other people will wear their masks to protect me as pennsylvania leaves its lockdown status our Our county right now is in the yellow zone, which means we are slowly reopening. We are not in the green zone yet. We're a little too close to Philadelphia for that. But but so far, people have been really good about wearing masks and not getting too close and, uh, and remembering that we don't wear the masks to protect ourselves. We are doing it to protect others, which kind of means that not wearing one, at least where we live, is kind of like biting your thumb at someone. Not not a nice thing to do. All right. Be well. I will talk to you soon. Take care. Have a great one. Bye. A big thanks to all the Craftlit listeners who support the show by being a premium audio member via craftlit.com slash premium or via patreon.com slash craftlit. Your support for the show is what's kept us going since 2006. If you feel like getting free audio pretty much every week, Please consider supporting the show by heading over to patreon.com slash craftlit and pledging what you feel the show is worth to you. If you can't support the show that way, consider leaving a review at iTunes or at our facebook.com slash craftlit page or follow at craftlit on Twitter and share the show with your followers too. And remember, if your hands are too busy to pick up a book, at least you can turn one on.